Good morning. How's everybody doing? It's feeling, feeling a little fallish today. A little bit of um, rain yesterday, which... Is anybody else fall as your favorite season? All right. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I know. I was talking to Jordan. He's like, no, 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 summer. Right? How many summer people? Yeah, okay. Well... October tends to feel a little summery anyway, so you guys probably get a little bit of an extension. But for those of us who long for the fall yesterday, um, we had an event yesterday at our church, which was really fun. We um, invited a, a group of people that um, are connected to an organization called CFDM. It's Christian Formation and Direction Ministries to come in and do a day where we talked about formation as a model of discipleship. And some of you were there, which is great. And uh, you probably were like, gosh, Jeff talks about this all the time. So it, it kind of is for me what is right at the heart, I feel like, of what we do. And I thought, I want to take some of what I taught yesterday and present it. Again, we've been talking about this, transformation. Why is transformation so important? And um, and I was thinking, it's worth drilling down on because it, to me, is the answer to this question of why we do what we do. I... Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Simon Sinek. He's a, a guy, a leadership guy who's really taken and emphasized that idea of why is what is right at the heart organizationally. For those organizations that succeed, they not only have a why to begin with, but they keep it front and center at all times. Constantly reminded, this is what we are here to do. And we talk about how we as a church have a, a vision statement of becoming like Christ for the sake of others. And that simple vision statement really, to me, embodies the why. Why do we meet as a church? Why do we gather together? What is it that we're here to do? And transformation is just simply a naming of that process of becoming like Christ that this is the work that we're committed to. And it takes a lifetime. As much as we would like to think that we could just download that thing at once and then we just had it. And this is not to minimize this moment of salvation that occurs. And yet to realize that salvation has this sort of ongoing, what we call sanctification. The lectionary passage for today is one that I often refer to. And I think... It is one that embodies the why. It's um, arguably written by Paul, but some would say maybe not. Some would say that Paul might be simply quoting this passage. Some have even referred to it as a poem or a hymn that the church had. That as he's writing in his letter to the Philippians, he presents this deep truth. Here's the center. And in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, he says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the, na- so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this passage, this hymn, this poem is encapsulating so much theology in there. 
Jesus is God, existed in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be gripped onto. Instead, in humility, he released this, emptied himself. And Paul's saying, that mind, that is what, you want to know God's mind. What is God thinking, right? What is going on in the back of God's mind? Emptying, sacrificing, becoming obedient. That this is the path and this is the mind that Paul is saying, you too have this mind. And in the verses preceding this, he's going to go, don't consider yourself better than each other. Consider others as more important than yourselves, right? It, it like gets into our very behavior. We're being encouraged to have a mind that is humble. And hearing that, thinking of that, and then taking a sort of like inward look, how humble are your thoughts? Oftentimes our thoughts betray that that ego is still alive and well within us. We get a picture of just how much we have to be transformed when we see our own selfishness, our own jealousy, our own insecurity. But what do we do? We keep this front and center. This becomes our focus, like looking into a mirror. I I like how Paul is going to write this in 2 Corinthians 3, that we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. And that glory of this humility, that glory of this beautiful obedience and sacrificial love, that becomes the offer. Which some of you may be thinking, I don't remember hearing that as part of the offer, right? I mean, we, we heard like, hey, this is a way to not go to hell. <laughs> this is a way to go to heaven. And we're like, sign me up. And you go, all of a sudden you're looking at, whoa, this is a further road than what I had anticipated. That Jesus isn't just saying, hey, let me carry the cross so you don't have to. He's saying, oh, you have to take up your own cross. This is the way. This is the journey. And I was thinking about this, this idea of a transformational model. And I want to talk about it because I feel some conviction, not only personally and not only biblically, I feel both of those, but somewhat prophetically that I think... This gets at, to me, something that needs correction within the church. And I love how Walter Brueggemann says that when a prophet prophet is speaking prophetically, it, it has these two kind of opposite poles. It's like almost like it's gripping the two terminals of a battery, the positive and the negative, right? It prophetic speaks with challenge. It's willing to say this is what's wrong or this is what's out of line, but also with this hope of, This is who we're called to be, right? The prophet is both challenging and optimistic. He speaks with this sense of conviction and also with this deep sense of possibility. And I think in this idea of a transformational model, it's going, this is your destiny. You see it even in Philippians, this glory is what you're called to. It's not this spiral down into some sort of depressive state, but to realize this is where we come alive. That is the direction. That is the hope that we get to seek after. That the the wisdom of heaven would be the thing that just sort of naturally radiated out of us. When we have this mind of Christ, then the fruit just is going to spill out. It, it leaks out of us. 
But when I look around oftentimes at the church, what I see leaking out of us doesn't feel so fruitful. Not the wisdom from above, at least, but maybe more the wisdom of below. And and what I'm referring to here is a, a passage that I've often quoted to you guys out of James. But in James 3, he he talks about this wisdom and and really how our understanding, is it tied here? Is it tied to this world? Or does it have a trajectory that looks beyond? And he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there's disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. When we're told to consider the mind of Christ, we look at Jesus and his humility, responding in obedience. And we're told by James, this is the fruit that comes from a life lived in such a way. Filled with peace. Righteousness sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. This is what the church is here to do. This is hopefully what you feel when you walk into this space. A non-anxious space. And as we're leaning into the work that God is doing, as we're leaning into this work of transformation, we're being invited into that sort of wisdom. But we also know this, that selfish ambition and Vain conceits, these kind of things can sneak in and like cancer bring a sort of death or a rot to the fruit. That even the church is not immune to this. And we see this more and more and more. That if we don't have an understanding of the cultivation of peace in our lives, if we're neglecting that work, the fruit is going to be an indicator And salvation, understanding this work as a way of cultivating in us the mind of Christ, the wisdom from heaven, the gentleness of that kind of wisdom. When we understand that trajectory, it's what's going to help us navigate through life, even the difficult things of life, and let them do their work. I like how N.T. Wright says that this moment of salvation, this moment of conversion is a critical moment in the faith. It's like the steering wheel of the car, but reminds us it's not the car itself. Salvation, transformation is this robust picture of the work that God is doing, what he's up to in your own lives and hearts. And I think for me, I I wanted to kind of speak to this testimonially to just sort of tell you Jeff's story along this path. Because... I was like the cradle Christian, right? I memorized scripture before I even invited Jesus into my heart. I was um, growing up in this. I was dedicated in a church just, you know, weeks after I was born. And so this is what I've known. But as I've walked this path, my faith along the way has shifted and changed. It's grown. And I, as a kid, like loved reading my Bible, loved that sense of connection. I had this hunger for these two things. And I think these are just human, but this hunger for truth and this hunger for belonging. 
And, and I think those two things for me felt like they could coexist. But growing up in the church, I realized that there's a, another problem that I had in this hunger for truth was a constant questioning. And that wasn't always seen as such a helpful thing as I went through life. I had a tendency to ask questions until I got to that question that everybody was like, no, 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 we don't ask that question, right? And then you like suck all the energy out of the, out of the room, like, oh, Jeff, we don't ask that one, right? And, and so belonging and questioning, you like had to kind of manage the dynamic there. Does that make sense? Careful what questions that you ask. And, and inside realizing there was questions that I was wrestling with that I would just sort of decide not to ask even myself that it just wasn't helping in my feeling of connection, even within my family or within my church. And so what I did is kind of went into apologetics and really dug into that. I had discovered Lewis in his Narnia books and loved that. Then I just went deep dive into all his teaching on apologetics I went to college, became part of Campus Crusade, and became an avid witnesser on campus. And I would lead people through the four spiritual laws. And I don't know if you're familiar with, like, law one, God's got a plan. Number two, you're sinful. We lost that. Number three, he fixed it with the cross. Number four, you can accept it. And and we would hold up this illustration, like this choice. Do you have that slide? You can be the circle on the left or you can be the circle on the right. The self-directed life where the cross is outside and the self is on the throne and all our values are kind of a mix and a jumble. Or the Christ-directed life. All those things in our life focused inward, Christ on the cross, self at the seat. And and it became a choice that we would offer. And and before I go any further, I, I need to just reiterate I saw some incredible things happen with this. And I've told you this story about like my roommate daring me to go up and share with these people that were tailgating loudly in this parking lot. And I was like, oh gosh, this is horrible. And went up, I terrified. And and honestly, I mean, I've told this story before, but this guy, like I get to the end of this book and he goes, I feel like I've been waiting for this my whole life. And these guys like kneeled down and prayed this prayer. So I go, oh my gosh, that was incredible what that did. But I, I also have told you the story about witnessing with this young Asian girl who looked at me and said, do you have any idea what you're asking of me? And thinking, do I? That this simple little choice just seemed like, hey, come on, option A or option B. She seemed to understand just how much a decision like this could uproot. And as I looked at my own life and in my own heart, I remember thinking, how do I reconcile all of this? I've got still myself all these questions that are remaining, things that are nagging at me. I remember at one point thinking, maybe there ought to be a third circle with Christ on the throne and yourself at the foot, but question marks inside Ways that things felt inconsistent. I was seeing leaders that I had respected fall. Or I was seeing more and more behind the curtain at the church and thinking, gosh, it seems like we could be taking more of our own medicine. So at a stage like this, I just kind of doubled down and went into ministry. (laughs) Started working at a Christian camp. 
And from there, got a job as a youth pastor. And honestly, went into one of the best seasons of my life. I made some of my deepest friendships during that time. I found things in myself that I was good at that I didn't know I was good at. I um, was able to kind of step out onto this front stage and really be stretched in so much of um, just who I was and who I was becoming. I loved that stage. And it was during that time I was also introduced to this guy, Henry Nowen, who some of you have read. And I remember that being like, whoa, this, this was this understanding of a sort of deeper, more contemplative walk. And he became like a, a new friend of mine. I, I, Thomas Merton too. I just started trying to really cultivate a deeper life of prayer during this time. But I was struck at the same time by the fact that you had this front stage and this backstage of faith, that there was continued to be this presentation of something that had all the answers, everything together. And then the behind the scenes, the part that was a little bit more hidden and didn't feel congruent with the two. And I remember thinking as I was on that big stage, just the awkwardness of ministering from a place that was feeling less and less authentic for me personally. And it was at this time that I was going to switch from one position to another, from one stage to another stage, kind of, so to speak. And I don't mean that so judgmentally. I just mean large and presentational. And remember thinking, I need to get somewhere that feels like I can just be a little bit more genuine. And that's when I came to this little church 22 years ago. I met Brad, who was a pastor, who just felt like he gave me that freedom to kind of be who I was. But at the same time, too, I remember reading this book by Brian McLaren called A New Kind of Christian. Did anybody read this book? All right. So a handful of you. It totally messed with me, right? Because a friend, I was actually up at Forest Home at winter camp, and a friend came up and was like, can you please read this? Like, this book has messed with me. And so I did, and I thought, oh, my gosh, like, I'm not the only one asking these questions. It wasn't really a book of answers. It was a book of questions. And part of me was like, I can't believe you're saying this out loud. This is going to get you fired, you know? And and, and thinking people did get fired at that time for kind of asking those questions, this odd sort of thing. It was asking questions like, is there more? I was thinking when I was at Fullerton, we had a, a larger... Sorry, I just called that place out, but that was where I was at before this. But... um. I mean that without judgment. Love that church. Um, but we had a different model of discipleship there. And, um, and it looked like a baseball diamond. Are you familiar with this one? That um, you, you, know, you get up the plate, hit the ball, make it to first base, saved, right? Like you're in. But, but for those that want to like really go for it, like second base is like actually learn your Bible, grow, Understand more of that truth. Third base, find out you've got a spiritual gift that can be offered. And home plate, finding a place of ministry in which to engage. And, and here's the truth of this. Like, I think all of that is fantastic. I think all of that is critical. That each of these stages, I think, as I've been there, I've gone, I loved these stages. The newness, 
of finding that truth. Like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Going into scripture and finding this just sort of bedrock confirmation of like deepness in there, wisdom in there. Finding a place within it, understanding part of your calling and who you're meant to be, and then finding places to serve. But what I think I found is that you got to home plate and realized you had so much further to go. Are you supposed to just keep going around the bases? And I think in my own sort of journey, I'm so thankful to being introduced to kind of a, a more contemplative path that doesn't dismiss this. It just continues to go forward. Eventually, Brad was not the senior pastor of this church. He was taking another call in Chicago and said, here you go, Jeff. And I was like, I'm not ready. Um, and I started seeing somebody for what's called spiritual direction. And spiritual direction is really not what it sounds like. Spiritual direction sounds like a spiritual coach, somebody who's going to give you direction. And it wasn't. Instead, it was somebody who just sat with me, didn't answer my questions, but asked questions of their own. Questions that took me further in. Questions that took me out of like my head that had answers into my heart that had longings. Things within me that continued to stir an ache for something more. And to find God in that space accompanying me. Her role was constantly to bring God back into the midst of those questions. The midst of the tensions. To realize I was being accompanied there. That even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, that he was with me. The questions weren't something to avoid. The questions were something to travel through. And as I began to understand that, I looked in Scripture and realized it's everywhere in Scripture. I came out of that wanting to be a spiritual director myself and went through this training and was introduced with a new model that is really an old model. And it's what I'm getting at when I talk about a transformational model. Go ahead and put up the next slide. It it, it does this. It, It goes like... Stage one, this life-changing awareness of God. Stage two, what it calls discipleship, is like this learning, developing. Stage three is this active life of ministry and service. And here's the thing. Stage four, this inward journey, is met by, you see that like big old black line extending down the wall. Some people will call it the desert or the wilderness maybe even the valley. And what you realize is that thing, we often spend so much of our life trying to avoid that reality as if we could. And that we have this God who leads us into that place. That each story has that element in it, right? It's Joseph getting falsely accused, sold into slavery. 11 years later, he's still wrongfully imprisoned. And we think, what is God doing in this time? You think of David, he comes, becomes a giant killer and he goes out in victory only to have Saul hunt him and David has to flee for his life and hide in caves for years. 
And there's a work and a struggle in that season. I love that for David, he was the victorious giant killer. But in the wilderness, he proved his heart of obedience by not killing Saul when Saul was given to him over and over as to take matters into his own hands. This surrender that he learned in that place. We talked about this last week, even with Paul, as Paul's chained and in prison, he's going, God is with me and God's using me. And even this being chained to this man is for my own salvation. Paul in this place where he admitted even despairing of life at one point. Realized, no, God doesn't keep us from the wilderness. God beckons us into the wilderness and walks with us. And what happens is our hearts are transformed. Not just fixed, but made into something new. That this mind of Christ that Paul speaks of, this humility, this following Jesus downward, happens so much in the wilderness moments. Those become these key opportune moments of deep refinement. Jesus models this himself. I love how the the Spirit compels him and leads him both into the wilderness into the struggle, into the challenge, into the temptation. Jesus comes out of that ready for his ministry to begin. And I think these moments, these questions, right, that, um, that people are asking, I, I think nowadays you, you hear a, a term being thrown around quite a bit called deconstruction. And in some ways, I think it's now sort of become this kind of bloated term. Like, what do you mean by all of that? You see instances where it's being done well. You see instances where it's not. I talked a little bit yesterday about deconstruction at this event. People were going, how do you do that in a healthy way? And I would say this, that it's always about truth. That if deconstruction is happening in a way that is healthy, it's prophetic. Like we were talking about, it's got a hand on both of these terminals. It challenges certain things, but it also has this deep sense of hope that there's more that lies beyond. Nobody does it better than Jesus. He is, to me, the ultimate of showing us healthy, wise deconstruction. It's not demolition. It's not cynical, right? It's just asking, do we really understand Do we really understand what's at the heart of this thing? And he turned it most on the people that thought they had it all figured out. And this is the tendency we can like, in an effort to avoid that wall, just double down on having it figured out, or we've got the answers, or we've checked that box. So Jesus comes in and flips all that on its head. People standing there with rocks saying, should we stone this woman caught in adultery? And Jesus says, yeah, whoever's never sinned, go first. And they just stand there (laughs) until slowly they start walking away one by one. The oldest first. Until there's just this woman there by herself. Jesus says, where are those who condemn you? And she says, they've all gone. And he said, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more with such compassion to this woman. 
And see, you look at these stages of faith and you're like, that woman was probably at stage one encountering maybe God for the first time. And he speaks to her with such gentleness. But these guys who are maybe at stage three thinking they've got it all figured out, he's shoving them a little bit further into the wall. Jesus does this so beautifully. And it's where we've like struggled with Jesus to try to figure out his formula of salvation. And it's really hard to do. It's easier to do with Paul, right? You can do the Romans road or these different things. But, but with Jesus, you realize it was like different for each person that he was with. He has dinner with Zacchaeus and he goes, hey, sell half your stuff. Then he talks to the rich young ruler and says, sell it all. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. That Jesus as this masterful physician is looking into the heart of each one, revealing where our faith has become too small and helping us to grow. And he does it by causing tension. If you want to be the greatest, be the least. If you want to lead, be the servant. Oh, you want to live, then you need to die. In my kingdom, blessed are the meek, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who suffer. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We think we've got it figured out and God's like, there's more. There's more. And it keeps going like this as our hearts are stretched and enlarged. What's happening in this work? Transformation manifesting in the wisdom of the kingdom. In these later stages of faith, this inward journey is this sense of relationship being formed that we're taking not just this head knowledge, but all of a sudden finding in it the depth of relationship with God, which leads to this sort of spilling outward in a life of surrender. You think of Jesus and his journey inward in the garden going, take this cup from me. You think of Jesus Journey outward, not my will, but your will be done. And to this final transformed love of this non-anxious presence as he's standing in this place of persecution, being accused by the, the religious leaders and then by um, Pilate, sentenced to death in this sense of just a resigned calm there on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I love how Lewis says, I'm not there, but I'm starting to recognize those people out there that are. But you have to know what to look for because they're humble. They're gentle. You recognize them almost by like the temperature than any sort of noticeable outward thing. These hearts that are softened, gentle, full of peace. And to go, this is the why, as we meet and gather and seek to become like Christ. It's going, God's going, that's the work that I'm doing. And we never graduate from it in this life. And we have an opportunity, like a one-room schoolhouse, <laughs> to realize that we're all at different places. 
And it's not an achievement. This isn't about a home run, not to diss on the baseball diamond, but, but it's not like, how do I get to the top of the class? It's about how do I live a life that is yielded? How do I live a life that is surrendered? I told you before, I just love how John Stott in his very last message was like, I feel like I have more questions than answers. But he doesn't mean that with a sense of despair. He means that with a sense that God has continued to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Like little Lucy Pevensey in the second book when she goes back to Narnia, sees Aslan and goes, you're bigger. And Aslan says, no, you're bigger. But this is somehow how this works. That it's our hearts enlarging. As our hearts enlarge, the eyes of our heart are able to see more and more of who God is. The depth of the love. Right? As Paul says, knowledge that surpasses knowledge. Meaning, you never got that one figured out. And so it becomes the way that we hold truth. Not like clenched fists. But with this posture of this openness. Teachable, humble willing to be led. Not my will, but your will be done. But at times, there's permission in this to pray really honest prayers. I'm grateful that Scripture is filled with prayers like that. David, like, are you going to forget me forever, God? So honest. And God's like, keep praying. Job, some terrible prayers that Job prayed but real and true and prayers to God, which I think is the point. And yesterday when I was talking about this deconstruction, there was a lady that's there that's like in it, in the wilderness. And I thought it's so helpful because we're not talking about this idea of like some idea out there to wrap our heads around. You're like, when somebody's in this, It is lonely, and it can feel hopeless. And I think too often we send people outside of the church. If you're not gonna, if you're gonna keep asking those questions, if you're gonna keep praying those prayers like David prayed, don't do it here. Don't bring that discomfort into this space. You're wrecking my peace. But part of our growth and wisdom as a church is learning how to sit with people in those spaces. As we talk about making this a safe space to heal, part of it is if you're wrestling, we're going, keep going. I remember my mom, I was writing a dissertation in the middle of all this. And my mom, who I could tell she like, my mom loves me so much, but I do worry her at times. Like, Jeff, you're going to go far, just don't go too far. And I remember at one point she was like, Jeff, just go hit this thing as hard as you can. And I remember as I look back, I think, wow, that was such trust on her part. But I wish that as a church, when people are struggling, that we're not saying, go do that over there. We're saying, do that here. You can seek truth and belong. You can wrestle and remain. 
that you're not looked at with judgment, but still encouraged to continue on. Because the fruit on the other side is what matters. You've heard me quote Oliver Wendell Holmes so many times, but I just love that quote, the, the simplicity on this side of complexity. For that, I wouldn't give a fig, but for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. For that, I would give my life. That's what I love about the wisdom from above. It's gone through the desert. It's moved beyond the wall and it's done it with surrender and obedience and trust. Filled with truth, but held with open hands. With that depth that can exist in the tension, that can walk with others as they struggle. I love how Paul says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. I love that, this pressing forward. May we as a church continue to press forward into the knowledge that surpasses knowledge. I finish each of these talks with questions, and that's on purpose. How do you go further? Right? It's, you don't come to church just to fill in the blanks. You come to church to go, all right, where am I called to wrestle? And I was just thinking, here's three different areas you could, paths you can go down. The first is like with your own comfortability. I said, what are the questions others ask that make you squirm a bit? We have them. All of us have them. Are there questions that set you off or flood you with emotion, right? Those triggers. You're like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh, I'm not fine, right? That thing. Have you ever asked yourself why? What is the emotion behind the anger or anxiety? And have you ever taken that question directly to God? That being part of the work, right? If you get angry, that's secondary. There's something underneath all of that. What is that that you're wrestling with? How are you inviting God into that space? Number two, do you ever find yourself looking at other Christians with a sense of superiority or resentment? How might you instead approach them with compassion and grace? How might we even change or affect our own behavior lovingly for the sake of the relationship? I love this about Paul when he's talking about meat sacrificed to idols, right? It's like some people that triggers, some people it doesn't. Freedom, but also be considerate of each other. Compassion. Number three, are there questions of your own that you're avoiding? Are there complexities you find yourself avoiding? What might lie on the other side of that wrestling? And thinking about these wilderness experiences, how might our past wilderness experiences inform us in moving toward the simplicity on the other side of complexity? I think we keep going through these moments. Not that we live in all that complexity, but when it comes, we trust. We're being shepherded, we're being led, that God is with us.